gonna go live. I'm gonna go ahead and record this. Okay, cool, we're live on Facebook. Um, all of you that follow me know that I am religious about double checking that I'm live where I think I am, and that is because once I wasn't, and it was hard to undo it. So welcome, we are live in the Facebook group, um, Unpacking White Feminism. I'm here with Toya Fernandez, who is a rock star. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, as I was telling you, I shared your video from, from May 29th, and it was during the um, Black Lives Matter protests. And um, you were talking about how this, you know, where, where are your allies? Where are the white women in pussy hats? And it really spoke to me as somebody who had been an, an original organizer for the Women's March and um, how we had 5 million women march and so many of them haven't shown up afterwards and the ones that have have insisted on what I call white feminism. So I'm wondering if you can just talk to us a little bit about the video in the background and tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first and foremost, thank you so much, Jazz, for having me on. This is uh, amazing. I love being able to come in a community with other women um, in sisterhood. And I think these are the kinds of conversations we need to be having with each other because when we are all working together towards a common goal, we're so powerful. Um, and we've seen that proven time and time again. So I'm just happy to be here with you. Uh, you know, you're a woman that I highly respect. So thank you. Um, so yeah, to just give a little context about the video, um, and I'll just back up a little bit and talk about um, my background. Um, I am an educator and activist here in Silicon Valley um, in San Jose, California. And my activism really did start in the classroom. Uh, as a classroom teacher, I saw the disparities um, between students that uh, were in communities that were considered to be socioeconomically disadvantaged and then the communities that are considered to be more, you know, suburban and just economically developed. And so I think seeing that disparity and seeing the difference in education that the students were offered, the lack of access to resources really made me think about systemic changes that needed to be made. And then I myself as an educator was put in a position where I had to write my own curriculum and pretty much be responsible for closing the opportunity gap in my classroom. And so from there, I had to learn a lot about the social issues that the community I was serving was really dealing with. So um, I got really involved in, in, in being involved in the community. And then I started my own community-based organization called Queen Heights, uh, where I created a platform for girls of color in the community to stand up, rise up in their communities, um, and, and to be at the table of, of influence when it comes to legislation and, um, and community impact. So anyways, long story short, I've been involved in Women's March. My organization has been asked to help, uh, help with uh, planning Women's March and organizing. Um, I've been a speaker at Women's March, a performer. My girls uh, in my organization have been speakers. Uh, I've led Women's March. Um, and I have really experienced firsthand what it's like to be side by side with women from all different backgrounds and really seeing white women leading that movement um, and, and being inspired and feeling connected and excited in the moment and then kind of experiencing after that, uh, after the kind of the excitement about the march wears off and, and become, becomes dull, that at the actual tables of political influence and we're talking about policy and real issues and actions, um, I'm like, where are these women? You know, they're not there. Why aren't they at the table fighting for people? And I'll even give an example. I've actually been at tables where white women who have been um, leaders in planning events like Women's March and have been, you know, considered to be civically engaged women in the community have literally 
not backed up community leaders of color and like been like, oh, I didn't back them up because of an, an alliance that I have to this person or that, but it's not personal. And it's like, man, this is personal. And when we decided to march together, we were marching for equity for all of us, equal access to opportunities. So all of your alliances that are based on race and based on old money, those are all supposed to go out the window. And when you go out there and you march on those streets, you're taking a real statement and you're supposed to be living in that statement at the table as well. So that was my question is like, here we are in the onslaught of the revolution this summer with people throwing defund the police on the table, affirmative action on the table, presidential election, get Trump out of office, all of these different things on the table. And I'm looking around as an activist and I'm like, where are the white women who were at Women's March who said they'd be here? And I'm getting crickets. So I had to call it out. And here we are today, you know, talking more about it, but it needed to be called out. It needed to be called out. And I'll be honest, it's something that I've been frustrated with from the beginning. The Women's March was not supposed to be, I mean, it certainly data come together and that's joyful, but it was actually supposed to be a rally call. And that's why we had tabling and why we had partners. And the whole idea was, and I do this in the RBG main group. I just did it today. I brought in a partner specifically so that people can support the work of that partner. It's a very important organization. So here we are trying to funnel people to it. And the marchers are like, nah, uh, we just, we did our thing. We did the march. We're done. And part of the reason I think that is, is because as white women, I don't know that we're used to showing up for people or for issues that don't affect us personally. And we don't know how to do that. Oh, you're on mute. I don't know if you knew that. Oh, yeah. I'm just, yeah, I'm agreeing. Okay. And, just like, and I think that, and I think that's the part of it that's tied to privilege. And that's where the, the, you have to make that, uh, distinguish that for yourselves um, as white women um, that are coming to this table and doing this work is like, okay, when I'm coming to the table and doing this work, Number one, it's considered activism or community-based action. So am I doing this in response to what the community needs or wants or is requesting? And if my answer is I don't know or I haven't checked, then right then and there, you need to go back and reassess why you're doing what you're doing. And then the second thing is like, when it comes down to our own intentions and like, Listen, I personally feel oppressed as a person, as a woman in general, and that's why I'm out here. Great. But you don't only want to use that as your reason for showing up because then your work is self-righteous. It's just about justifying, you know, making the justification for yourself and taking a stand for yourself. And that's all fine and dandy. You can do that, but you can't use these social platforms and movements to do that. Well, and you have to be real about it. And I think that's where we are right now is I feel like we're at a new phase where, um, and that's, I think having a thousand people in this group honestly gives me a great deal of hope, um, is that people are ready to take to the next level and they don't know how. And they don't know how largely and often in my experience because they haven't been doing the work all along. So it's like there's a train moving and they're trying to figure out how to jump on, right? And so until you kind of connect with the people already doing the work on the ground and then help uplift that work, then you can you can move through the work that way. But what I often find is that women go, there's a new cause that I just heard about. There's this new issue that I'm concerned about and I want to join it and do something about it. And they assume that they need to be the leader of that action. And they, they forget. And we saw this with a lot of the local chapters, not to, to totally bag on Women's March, but we did see this with a lot of local chapters of Women's March was that they said, we're going to hold a march. And they didn't know 
because they were disconnected from the work, that this work was already happening in their areas locally. And so when they started this march, it was it, that's how we got a lot of chapters that didn't have leadership that was reflective of the community because people decided they were a leader without having done that background work. And it is okay to come into a space where you're not the leader. There are a lot of spaces I come into where I'm not the leader. And to be honest, I kind of like it because then it allows me to learn and grow as a leadership in the other spaces where I am a leader because I can bring that knowledge with me. But I don't just have all the knowledge. And if I'm not the center of the issue, I'm not, I should not be leading, right? I 100% agree with that. And again, I think like it's twofold because I, I, I do, as I understand the white woman's uh, plight in the household, you know, and the role that a, a white women are, have to play in the household with their kids, with the husband, and also the, the, the plight of women in general. And I can understand that oppression and not feeling maybe having that onus and the leadership in the household and how that can transcend into these spaces. And then there's the other side of it of black and brown women who, yes, you should be consulting to lead in these initiatives. And on the same hand, how do we balance not putting the weight of the work on these women as well who are already having to carry the load from being oppressed from these issues and are often leading these movements as well. So it is kind of, a, how, do we, how do we find balance? And I think it has exactly to do with what you're saying is like, assessing the issue and going to the people, but really finding a way for white women and black women and women of color to be co working cohesion. It doesn't need to be just one white woman running it and, or one black woman running it. It needs to be a team of leaders and they need to represent the community and the issues. And I think that's where, you know, when we look at what are the next steps that we take when we're, at, when we're organizing these types of events, understanding that it cannot be done with just one representing party and if so that representing party cannot be on the side that has been traditionally perceived as the oppressor absolutely absolutely and i think that in in some of my experiences of bringing women uh black women white women and women of color together that organizing often falls apart because of the lack of understanding um from the white women about the work that's already been done, the oppression that you're talking about, how we're already carrying the weight of this, we need you to pick up more of the pieces, and ha finding those conversations because they're just not even aware of some of the terminology or the depths of some of these racist systems that we live in. Um, and I, it's, it's so true though, and I wish I had a better example, but it's like when you start to, I don't wanna say onion, I don't like that one, but once you start to peel back the idea of like, like I was working on prisoner rights for a long time, right? So it just started with, there was an issue with the notary. And then I realized, as I went deeper and deeper and deeper, I saw just how racist in every level, every step these systems are. And it's once you start pulling at that string, you really have a stronger sense. So that's why getting in there and co-working with somebody and really learning and being ready to own your own education around that can help you be a stronger team player in some of these actions that we're taking. And then consistency, I think, is another problem that we struggle with. Absolutely. And I actually want to give a quick example, too, of what some great allyship looks like. Uh, when I was a dean of students at a college prep uh, middle and high school out here, I had this coach. Um, her name is Michelle, and she was amazing. She was a social worker, and she, you know, she was a mentor and a coach to me. And one thing about her is that before she decided to engage in this work um, and become someone that could, that could coach a black woman 
um, in education um, and around social work and around student well-being and community well-being, she did a lot of internal work first. Um, and I noticed as my coach, she always went into our conversations and our coaching sessions asking me to pretty much guide what it was that I was needing from her because it was really important to her that I didn't feel like she was a white woman coming in trying to tell me what to do. She actually deferred to me as the expert at my job and in my field and wanted to support as an ally with resources to build on top of what I was already doing. And so I love that. And then the other, uh, the other thing was in public settings, she continued to ally herself with me. So she would actually see when my voice would be shut down or not uplifted, or if I felt I was being ignored. And she would be very intentional with saying, yeah, actually back to what Toya was saying, or she would say, actually Toya raised a really good point, or to add on to what Toya said, or she would uplift my ideas. So she used her privilege and almost like her platform, her position to uplift me. And she also allowed me to, be the expert in my own right in the issues and be a, a thought partner. And I, I thought that was a really brilliant way for her to approach, um, not even just co-working with me, but mentoring and coaching me. That's a really great way to say that. And it's, uh, um, as women, I think we often run into that uh, with men where we'll say something, right? There's that kind of classic example of a woman will say something and a man will say it and everybody will think he was brilliant, but it happens, white women do it to women of color and black women as well. So I think it's something that we can understand very quickly and understand what that looks like very quickly as how we can be part of the solution. So I really appreciate that example. Um, so we've talked a little bit about allyship. Um, can we also talk, because this is something that's really close to, to both of our hearts, is education. And so when I talk up to people and organizations and you know, schools, communities, all these different places that I talk about bringing in a more inclusive and um, um, well, inclusive group. I also talk about one of the things we have to do is what we're doing is we're actually retraining parents, but what we should be doing is starting in our education system. And even something as basic, and I say this everywhere because it really frustrates me, even something as basic as the free reading books should not just represent one part of the school, it should represent the entire community. And there should be books of Black joy and Black stories and what black people, Americans have brought to our nation, what immigrants have brought to our nation. There's, you know, Island Pacificers, there's all the LGBTQ, there's all these other groups and it's not inclusive within our education. And um, the way that the stories are told in education, like the history of, you know, civil rights and slavery is the only time we really hear about black Americans. So what happens is we end up with a single story of what a black American is. And so then when you've got a student that who is, um, acting out in class, you have a single story of who they might be. And so it becomes this whole system that becomes that pipeline, right? Suspension rates, the whole thing. Yep, absolutely. And like, just, you know, adding on to that, like, the education system is the epicenter of social change. Right. It, right. It's like where everything happens. Um, and so that is why, again, like, why now is so important, especially with kind of the evolution of education now into distance learning, into hybrid learning. There's so much more autonomy for educators, for parents, and for community to think, really reimagine and think about how are we educating our kids, like, and how, how can we educate our kids now? 
And I love what you said about the representation in the curriculum. And I think it's really important that our school board members and that the folks that are in charge of bringing curriculum into the schools, that they are going to black and brown educators who have curriculum, published curriculum, who have programs that have data that's proven that this stuff works. Instead of thinking they need to reinvent the wheel or pay a committee of white, you know, young new educators to build things that have already been, who already been uh, created. And so I think like going to those people, those experts in the community, and then understanding that you have to not just eat, not just acknowledge different cultures um, and races and different groups of people in the school, but you have to celebrate. Yeah. You have to celebrate students' cultures. You have to celebrate, you know, the, the, the different, uh, di different identities in the school. And I think a lot of schools are missing that mark. And when you ask why, it's always a matter of, like, capacity. Oh, you know, teachers are burnt out. Everyone's burnt out. But it's like if everyone just did their part, if everyone did a little bit. For example, uh, one of the programs I rolled out in the school that I used to work at, I created a diversity wall. And every month, there was different groups represented on this wall and the students did the heavy lifting. They did the research, they pre pre presented the people on the wall and then everybody in the school walked by and got to read this wall and people got to add to it and have their students add to it. And then different grade levels were responsible for hosting different cultural celebrations every month for the entire school. So we'd have an event every month and it'd be in the morning before school started. The entire school would be outside and they'd be representing whatever cultural um, you know, month it was. But it gave everybody an opportunity to own that. It wasn't put on one person and you got to work with your colleagues and work with students and families to make it happen. So it's this thing where people think it's this big idea that's gonna require a lot of heavy lifting when really it takes a village. And I like to be even more specific in saying it takes our village to raise our kids. So if you are going to come into our village and help raise our kids, we all have to be willing to put in a little bit, you know, to make it happen. Well, and it goes back to, I mean, so there's two things there. One is that um, if we don't fix these issues of representation and like you said, celebration in the schools, then my kids will be going through trying to unpack all of this and dealing with the same structures. But if we start young, expanding these uh, narrations out of the single story and start showing the diversity and celebrating each other and holding space for each other's truths at a younger age, then our country will start to heal itself because that's where our hope is. That's where the love comes from. And that's where our future is, right, is in the kids. So focusing on the kids is a big piece for me. But then the other side is, I always tell people, I'm like 10 minutes a day. Think of it as 10 minutes a day or 60 minutes a week. So are you doing it um, a little bit every day or can you do it just on Saturdays? What does it look like? But commit to that hour a week in some form and pick one issue and go for it and really commit to it and then bring people in with you. And actually RBG said that, right? She said lead in such a way that makes others want to follow. And this, yeah. is, this is very much taking that piece. Like if somebody had a school, like you're talking about, they can ha build that team at their own school to start building that out. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's super important. And I think like when you teach black, uh, when you teach black history and you teach indigenous history, um, and you don't teach it from the lens of the oppressor, you eliminate two things. When you start teaching and, and experiencing as a community all of this history with full context and in celebration, you eliminate two things. One, 
you eliminate your black and brown students from feeling inferior and like they come from a history of victims. And then you also eliminate the white fragility that comes from white guilt from white students who are also learning this information and hearing that their ancestors were oppressors. So when you eliminate white guilt and you eliminate if black and brown inferiority, now you're creating an equal playing field for students. Now they're seeing each other in, in historical context in the full, the full spread of history and understanding how history has continued to repeat itself and understand how different groups of people were on top at different times and what continuously leads to oppression of a group of people. And then now we're stripping away social construct like race and gender and we're looking at humanism and we're looking at human rights, right? And that's the point that we want to get to in schools. I know, but it, sometimes it feels so far through. Um, sorry to cut you off, but yeah, I even have trouble talking to that level because I feel like I'm still trying to get people in that first round yeah. of just doing something active in their communities. Mm -hmm. And I think that first step is with yourself and i can't stress that enough i don't care how cliche it sounds you have to do the work yourself you have to really sit with yourself and ask yourself why is it that i want to do something what it what is making me want to act and really look at those reasons and then the next thing you want to do is think about once you think about your why and why does you want to do something think about the who who are the people i want to impact with what i'm doing if that's black people, if that's women, if that's LGBTQ, who are those people? And then after you get that, who are those people? Then you think about your what and you get that what from those people. So I think always starting with an assessment. So say, I'll just give an example. I'm a white woman. I'm hearing, I'm listening to this conversation right now and I'm like, wow, I really want to do something in the community. Like I, now I think it's, I want to, I want to help in education now that I'm hearing what they're saying. The first thing that you want to do is ask yourself, why is it that I want to do this? The next thing you want to do is who is it that I want to impact? It may be who I want to impact is white teachers. Now that I'm hearing this, I want to start talking to white teachers about, you know, showing up the right way. Okay, that's who you want to talk. That's who you want to impact. Then the next thing you need to do is go to white teachers and ask them about their experiences and ask them about what are they struggling with in working with communities of color. And then you go to students or families and you ask them, what are your experiences like with white teachers? So you always wanna start your action and your work with assessing. You want to get, you want to gather um, information and you wanna assess. So know the issue. Number one, know why you're coming to the table. And number two, go directly to the people you want to help and survey them first. That should take you a lot of time. If you are just getting new to this and you wanna do this, those two things right there are gonna take you a couple of months to really give you a deep understanding of the people you are trying to help. So I would say start there, your why, and then going to the who it is that you wanna support, asking them about the issue and working directly with them to resolve the issue. So then let's say there's an emergency because I feel like that happens a lot. We're very reactionary, especially the last four years because um, Trump's been very productive. So instead of being kind of ahead of a lot of these issues, we actually are catching up as they're happening in real time. 
So let's say somebody hears about a new issue and they want to join it right now. It's happening fast. What, what is your suggestion for them on how they handle that? So you're saying they want to do something quick. So let's, I mean, let's go. Yeah. Let's say, um, the, you know, the, uh, sorry, the passing of George Floyd and um, the murder of George Floyd and the protests that happened afterwards. Let's say they wanted to organize something around that in their community and it's, they know it's timely and it has to happen right now. They don't have a couple months. What is your suggestion? I have my own ideas, but I'd yeah. love to hear yours. My suggestion is you don't organize anything. You find out who the community organizers are and the organizations in the community that already are doing something and you show up at that table and you shut your mouth and you listen and you watch them do their work. And, and I'm gonna tell you, you know, I know that works. I'll tell you this summer, when we all started organizing after the George, uh, when the George Floyd protest broke out and all the organizers came together, I really appreciated the white people that literally showed up into our organizing space and came and were like, listen, I'm here. I, I just, I, I feel compelled to do something. I want to be a part of this, but I am not an expert. I'm going to sit here. I'm going to shut up. You guys tell me what you need from me. And from that, some of those young white activists ended up coming out of the summer starting their organizations. For example, I'll give one example, Hero Tent. Hero Tent is an organization primarily made up of white activists. They said, look, our goal is to feed the people that are out there, to use our privilege and our platform to feed and take care of people. And then when the police show up or anything happens, we'll put ourselves on the front line. And that came from them showing up at the organizing table, literally sitting back, listening, seeing what was needed and seeing that, oh, food and water is needed, we'll just keep showing up and doing that. And then creating an entire nonprofit organization to do that. And so, and Surge is another organization, white women and their daughters interfering with the police. So they're like, listen, we wanna do something. We hear that police, um, you know, the, the tensions between police and community is, is a problem. All we know how to do is just be there and help talk. Can we do that? Yes, you can do that. So Surge now, they'll show up at protests and rallies, and if police show up, these white women and their daughters, they will step up and they become the liaison between you and the police. And so that, those organizations came out of white people sitting in, in community meetings and just listening, you know, and, and getting their directive. So don't feel compelled to go organize something. Go show up, see what the community's talking about, jump in where you're needed, basic humanism, right? And then from there, you'll naturally lead. Like you'll naturally, you know what I'm saying? Like it, it's just a hundred percent. It is. And it's not, I think people feel like they have to fight for that position, um, which A, if you're fighting for it, you're in it for the wrong reasons. And B, if you're showing up and doing the work that will be recognized by the people around you. Um, I think the, the other thing I was going to throw out there as well as an option for those types of almost emergency moments is when you hear like a city council meeting is going to be planned for this. You hear these things, call and advocate for people of color and black women to be at the table, be the voice that, cause unfortunately our voices are often taken more seriously, right? So go ahead and use that, use that privilege to bring those other people to the table and make sure that they are there and they are heard and they are part of the planning of this, this larger group or, you know, county, city, state, make sure this, what you can or the school board even. Right. And I would even say to all of everyone out there that wants to wants to get familiarized with these different areas of potential policy change and community impact, look at your city, county or state's boards and commissions. 
a lot of these boards and commissions, so a lot of people don't even know they exist. There's economic, uh, there's economic affair commissions, there's arts commissions, there's neighborhoods commissions, planning, housing. There's so many different boards and commissions and there are a lot of vacancies because people don't know these boards and commissions exist and you can just get right on them. You apply, you know, most of them, you'll barely even have to do an interview. They need to just fill these vacancies. So these are tables that you can be at. And like you said, Jazz, you can uplift the voices in the community that traditionally aren't and bring them to that table. So using your kind of your, your positioning to get in there and then bring the community with you. So I would say, look into your local boards and commissions, and you can find that in your city or county government website. Um, and, and see those vacancies and see if there's anything that that you you know that you feel you, you can connect with well and the other thing about those is they're not um, they're usually done in such a way that you can um, it's like once a quarter right that they're meeting it's not like they're a lot of the work that I do is like weekly or bi-weekly meetings this is once a month or once a quarter so it's a very manageable way to start bringing representation and arguing for representation um, as well so we're gonna wrap up but do you have any I mean you've extra words of wisdom, you've dropped a lot, but do you have anything else you wanted to say to the group before we head out? Um, yeah, I just want to say, you know, thank you all for tuning in. And I know that this process is, is difficult when it comes to recognizing, you know, okay, I have privilege or, you know, maybe some of the ways that I've, I've been to people haven't been right and I'm trying to figure this out and it can be really overwhelming. But I want to point a couple things out to y'all. One, you yourself did not own any slaves. So you do not need to walk around and carry white guilt and fragility about something you never did. And probably if you had the choice, you would not have done. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, it is okay to come to the table and to make mistakes and be held accountable and to move forward with humility. So it's okay to come to the table and mess up and be told by a person of color or a black person, or another white person, hey, you're messing up right, you need, to sh you need to shut your mouth right now and listen. It's okay to be held accountable and to be like, you know what, all right. And not feel like now you have no place in, in the movement or you have no place to help. You still can. Accept that onus. Move forward with humility. Because I'm gonna tell you right now, the community, that's your way to gain our trust. If we know that we can hold you accountable and that you're going to continue to move forward with humility and you're still going to rock with us through that, you'll have our trust and we'll be able to really get things done together. So those are the two things I want to leave with you is one, don't carry the guilt from your ancestors. You didn't do it. And number two, be okay with being checked and moving forward with humility. Well, and actually showing up after yeah. being checked and held accountable is where uh, is where we grow and where true allyship happens. That's because, right. Show up. Because I'm going to call you out if you don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's absolutely true. But it's very true. Um, and actually, this is something I was just telling Alika. She said to me a year ago, and it really hit me, which is that accountability only happens in community. So the book clubs and the, even us doing it in this group is still kind of a closed, safe space. It's doing the work out there learning and then showing up again. That's where you start building your allyship. And really the goal is not allyship. The goal is um, co-conspirator. It's that next level of activists together and working together, right? Yes. So they're also, um, if you have a Cash App, a Venmo, or a PayPal for your time, they're asking me if I could drop that later. So if you DM that to me, I'll drop that as well in the chat. 
Oh yeah, um, I'll DM it to you uh, right now. Oh, I can send it to you on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. Um, great. Um, so if it looks like we've, I'm um, I'm here to mess up and improve. Perfect, Kellyanne. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Um, yeah. I just, yeah, I'm sorry. I just want to say also too, feel free to you know check out what I'm doing. Uh, my website's pretty simple, LatoyaFernandez.com. So you can go there. Um, and just check out uh, the stuff that I'm doing. I've got some cool video content on there talking about these things that I'm happy to continue the conversation. Yeah, I was gonna drop the link to that, I'm sorry. Um, so thank you for bringing that up. Um, I'll drop both those links when we're done. And um, I do very much appreciate you coming on and talking with us today. Yay, thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Okay, I think I did that.